0: cover, um, we're going to, actually, this is what we had last week, but I never really got to the sermon, so I'm going to, I'm going to start off by covering some stuff we dealt with last week, and I was hoping Tyler would tell her to be here, but they'll come in here soon, but uh, I know they had some interest in some of this as well, but, uh, are they traveling? Oh, okay, well, don't hear it if they want to listen, I'll, I'll tell them that we covered it some more. Um. So, we dealt with We dealt with what the whole idea of God relenting or regretting, being sorry about something, what that meant, and maybe more importantly, what it does not mean, right? And so I want to review that and then just uh, say a few more things, and then if there's any questions, we can cover that. Because it is a, certainly an important topic. It's one that we want to have some idea And that we're clear about. And so, we saw that it's clear that God does not make mistakes and does not change his mind. He isn't sorry about how things turned out, obviously because he ordained all things from eternity, and because he doesn't make mistakes, it can only be good and perfect. He can be sorry for our sinfulness, and it is better said and generally translated like, you know, that he is grieved over our sin, that he and that, so the idea of sorry or regret, it's the same word. Sorry is never used in the Lord in some sort of apology as we sometimes think about it. And regret is never used in the sense of him wishing things had turned out differently. He is sorry or he regrets when people do what is wrong, when they disobey him. He's not happy to have to judge people for their sin, right? It grieves him, and yet that is all part of his good and perfect counsel. He regrets in the same sense that he is grieved. And if I said the same word in the original. When the Bible speaks of God relenting or changing his mind or actions, it is always in the sense that once man has met his established conditions, then he changes his actions and attitudes towards him as he has promised. Uh, and this is not God changing, but this is God working in time. For instance, thus when we repent of our sins, he forgives us. He removes his wrath. He does not do that in eternity. He does that when this happens. He works in the time framework that he has established. And and he loves and abides us in ways that he did not before. Again, read Roman, uh, John chapter 14, verse, I think, 23 or 24, where when you obey the Lord, when you keep his commandments, he says God will... Uh, show himself to you. He will love you, it says. It, it, not that he hasn't already loved you, but he will love and abide with you in a special way. First John 1-9, if we confess our sins, then he is willing to forgive us our sins. He works with us in time, in, in, in time work. And so we gotta be very careful, and this will lead us to the next thing, of trying to box God in, uh, in, in that, in one way or another, And not let the Bible speak for itself and and get our theology from the way the Bible reveals these things to us. Yes, brother... I don't do that for the mere fact that like, I'm writing my sermons. If I if I capitalize everything it just becomes a, a kind of a you know so I don't do it. But it's a reference to God, but I again I'm not I'm not sure that, you know, well we have to capitalize every reference, uh you know, as, you know, some maybe would. And if I was doing a formal book obviously you would perhaps do. too. So forgive me for that, uh if that's a problem for you. Um And, by the way, that reminded me, too, I meant to send you a corrected version of this, and I did not, although that wasn't, but I'll, I'll, you'll see it if I can get you. All right. None of these things mean that God changes as if he is less or more different than he was before. So now we're going to move into the idea of the uh, immutability and the imp- impassibility of God, uh, that which the idea of that God does not change and that God uh he's not emotional. And, and this gets re- really, people get really weird sometimes in all this, and it's not easy. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But none of these things mean that God changes as if he is less or more different than he was before. In other words, if God, if someone's if, if a nation sins, and God's, the Bible says God's wrath is kindled. That means that God is reacting properly in a holy way to that sin, just as He would act in forgiveness if we repent. That doesn't mean that God is emotional as we, because we are emotional when circumstances change, right? Uh if Someone says something mean to us, something wells up in us, right? We change in that sense, right? And of course, God nothing happens apart from God's plan anyway and His will, so God isn't caught by surprise, so He doesn't change at whim. But that doesn't mean that He doesn't have emotions. And and, and some people, when it comes to the impassibility of God, that God is passionless. That it means that God can't have uh, can't have emotions in it. They basically you know look at it like that. And and again, you no, know, the you can't have a stance that is contrary to the biblical uh, teaching, right? But in time his attitude and actions change in light of man's actions, all of which are happening according to his eternal counsel. And so the impassibility or immu- and immutability of God means that he is perfect and cannot become different than he always has been. but this does not mean that he cannot interact in time with creation and have different emotions at different times. In other words, if God can his emotional list, then what does the Bible mean when he, his wrath is kindled, when he uh, is delighted in something? You know, you, you, you've got to be very careful it's, and it's not that this can necessarily be understood all that well but when we move into these things of the nature of God and his emotional, how his emotions work, we're moving into places we really can't understand and the problem comes when someone has come to decide that this is how what this is what impassibility means. And uh and and, and yet it contradicts on the parts of scripture. So we got we gotta be willing to say, look, there's just some things we can't quite understand. God does not change, uh, he is not ruled by his emotions, they don't well up in him. We understand that, but that does not mean that God who gave us emotion can't have emotion, and then just leave it at that, instead of trying to say, well no, I've got to be able to explain this and then, if some do, if you don't hold my view, well then you're a heretic or you're wrong and we just make these things not to say they're not important, but we got to be able to step, step back, right? So I'm going to make two, I'm going to quote two paragraphs from the 1689 Confession that help us see some of the issues here. This is uh, these are two paragraphs talking about the nature of God, right? The first one says, "The Lord our God is but one, only living and true God, whose subsistence, is, so whose subsistence is in and of Himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself." And, and that should right there cause us to pause. Okay, we're talking about the essence of God and we cannot understand it, but only to some degree. And they're right. God alone really understands how He works and what He's made of, and however you want to put it, right. And most pure, so they, but they do try to list things that they 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 think that we can derive from Scripture, right? Most pure spirit, invisible, without body, hearts. Well, we'll see. But 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 there's a sense in which all these things are obviously true. God is not made up of parts, He's a pure spirit. And so He can't be divided if he's got parts, you have a sense of division there. So there's a sense in which that is true. Or passions, and that's where we get in past the possibility. But the problem here is that there's a sense in which is true. As I said, he doesn't have passions in that we in our sinful bodies make up have passions, but yet it does have emotion. So again, some of these things have to be thought out and, and to be willing to say, okay, there's there's we can go this far and no further. You only have the immortality, growing in life, which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, uh incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, and that the one there should I admit the I think that one out because there there were by all these words and phrases, there were numbers to reference to biblical references, and I just took them out for easier to read. Most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to his counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. His will cannot change. He it doesn't it's not it doesn't react to circumstances for his own glory and so forth. So you know, you see them trying to work this out in a way that we at least helps us gives us some sort of parameter so we don't fall off into error. The third paragraph, but the second one doesn't really uh, have anything to do with what we're talking about. I mean, here's where I have removed all these numbers and then it's the This helps us. This helps, I think, further define what we just read. In this divine and infinite being. There are three substances, so it's already said he's without parts, and yet we have to understand that we're talking about the Trinity. There's one God, but there's three persons. So we have to be careful of, when we talked about that, not to try to make it a, a all or nothing, because there's a sense in which the one God is composed of three persons, and I don't want to go further than that, but I don't want to say anything that would deny that, because there's a lot of guys out there today who, they have derived their theology of the Trinity from Thomas Aquinas, who was a brilliant but Roman Catholic theologian uh, uh, in the Middle Ages. <clears throat> talk about the simplicity of God, and they're going so far as to say that God is just one. And when they start trying to define that, they, they start to sound a lot like one that's Pentecostal. Because you're, you're going more than where the Bible is hate you they would say that God there God only doesn't have many attributes because God can't have parts and so if you have different attributes you have different parts of God no uh, so they say we only think of God as having different attributes but it's all the same with God and it gets to be very philosophical and weird because they're trying to explain what the Bible doesn't really explain to us so that, that's why we have to be careful. So there's three substances, subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, and one, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. So you see, you begin to realize there's a point here where we gotta be careful because we're talking about three, yet one, right? And the Trinity is that, is certainly that one thing that we really have to be very careful about. As the father of none, now they're going to talk about each one of the Trinity. The father is of none, that is, he always existed, he didn't come from anybody, neither forgotten nor preceding. The son is eternally begotten of the father. And, and this is where there's some disagreement. It, it's, it's a non-biblical term, which obediently makes you have to stop and think about it. The son is, is begotten of the Father, but eternally begotten sounds like it's, he's, oh, how does that work? And we don't know. The Bible says, every time it says that the Son was begotten of the Father, it's always in that day, in the Old Testament prophecy, that the Son was, uh, in, I will have, I will beget you. Uh, and so there are those who believe that when it talks about the Father begetting the Son. It, it talks about the Incarnation. Now, there's problems with that. But you see the problem here is the Bible doesn't say that he is eternally begotten, only that he is begotten of the Father. And so, again, I, I'm not trying to confuse. I'm just trying to say that we have to be very careful here. Um, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. It doesn't mean that there was a time in which the Son began to be begotten by the Father. That's what they. That's why they use the term eternally. and the same with the Holy Spirit. But they're usually words that we just really, know, yeah, we don't know. All infinite, without beginning, therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. So you see how it it sounds a little contradictory from the earlier paragraph of parts, and yet there's a way that is true, and a way that you have to be careful. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him? So I'm just kind of let you see those things to remind us that um, sometimes we, you know, God is is a mystery to us. There's some things about God we cannot understand. He reveals what He wants us to what we need to know, and doesn't reveal everything to us. And, our, and no doubt, in our minds, in our physical world, we can't, we couldn't understand it if, if He tried, or if I could put it that way, right? Um, and maybe someday we will, but I'm okay with whatever God has revealed to us. So, I just wanted uh, to um, put those things out there. Uh, is there are there any questions about that? I mean, I I'm not, I'm not trying to explain all this in any gross detail but yeah George right well I that's that, see, that's to ask one of the questions because as I said before there are those today who are making a, a Point of to fellowship with all this, by the way, and they're Reformed Baptists, unfortunately, a lot of them, not all of them, who say, you cannot have, you cannot separate God's love from His justice, from His wrath, from His goodness, because you make those parts, and God can't have parts. Well now you, you cause this problem. So they say, well, God doesn't distinguish between His attributes. Well, when He reveals them to us in Scripture, He does. Those are different those are things about God that that's revealed to us. God's love, we understand, is different than God's wrath, for instance, right? So, you know, so yeah, I think the parts does certainly refer to physical. Some take that though to go way beyond that. So yeah, you just you, you gotta kinda keep it in context as but Well, I'm, no, I'm saying that like they've used the term, and I understand that God, God is not composed of He's pure spirit, so He doesn't have parts, physical, or any other any other way. And so that, in that sense, is actually true. But to say that if we ascribe to God different attributes, all of a sudden we describe to Him as parts, I think is going beyond what we can reasonably explain and understand and prove, right? So, it's good. Yes, Rick. Oh. Okay, okay, go ahead. Oh, uh, Randy. Okay. I'm not in any hurry, so... Well, again, analogies are always problematic because a thought has many, many parts, right? And also, we've, we've talked about it before a little bit, but I'm not sure that you've ever been here before you were here. When we talk about the Trinity, there's a certain way we have to describe those things or we will run into problems. There is one being of God who is composed of, or however you want to put it, three persons. Not three beings, because now you've got tritheism. Three gods. There's only one God. The true God is composed, it is manifested in the three persons God, Father, and Spirit, right? So, I, a, so I'm not being picky, but there's a, there's a sense in which, in that case, you have to be, say it properly, think of it properly, because the, the Muslim, for instance, or the, some, the Jehovah's Witness, whatever, will immediately accuse us of being a Tritheist. We don't, we're polytheists, we believe in more than one God. Now, there's only one God, but that God is not just Father, not just Son, not just Holy Spirit. God is all three. All three persons, they compose what is God. One God. But if, as it says here, it, it subsists of three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But they, again, they are one in will, like in John 10, where Jesus says, Father, I and the Father are one, that literally in the Greek, is the idea of we are, we are one. So he's, he's not saying that we are one in the same person, we are one in will, we are, we are one, uh, in, in, as you were we talking about just a moment ago, and of course along with the Holy Spirit, we are one. So it is contradiction in our mind, right? How can you have we and have one? we're talking about the being of God. Yes. In Genesis. In, in, right in Genesis 11, about the Tower of Babel. Right, and there's one in chapter 1 of Genesis where, um, someone remind me, let us make man our own image, right? So, there's, but as, as, as I think the, the correct theologian would say, the Trinity is hinted at and taught of the Old Testament, but it's not really revealed until in between the Testaments. And by that, it means when Christ came. And we see Christ, and then we see the Spirit coming down upon Him. We hear the Father speaking from heaven. The Trinity is not fully revealed until the test, until in between the testament, right? And then explained to us as we read the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, that's why. That's why analogies of the Trinity, as a rule, will fall apart at some point. You, talk, you know, the best one I like, the, the only one I've ever felt pretty good, was the one about the sun. The sun, you, let's say, that's the Father. You've got the rays coming from the sun. Is it's the same essence? There's no difference. It is the sun, but it is what we see and feel, which would be the Son, the uh, Jesus, and then the heat would be the spirit, in a sense. So again, you know, it gets weird, but there, you can't divide and yolk, shell, and all that's a little bit different. So, you yeah. know, I leave it for it's best not to use illustrations as such, uh, Rick. Hmm. Mm-hmm. for both of these to yeah. the word. Yeah. For God, the arm of God doesn't mean God has an arm, but it's strength, right? Which is an attribute of God. It's power, right? Um, there's something George said that I was going to uh, make reference to. I I so alright. Anyway. Yes, um. Yeah, that's right. When, when the Jew said that it was uh, God speaking to the angels, Um, there were plenty of Jews, and I've said this before, right up in, especially testament times in Jesus' day, Jewish theologians, who recognized, and it's clear in their writings, that there was something of God that was plural. They understood. There were too many references in the Old Testament about his son, about all that, but they, they recognized that there was some sort of plurality when it had to do with God, but they, again, without the New Testament, you really are, are just kind of shooting in the dark. They recognize, so, so there were many Jews who said, "No, he's not talking to angels." They understood there was something going on there. They just didn't get it at the time. So I think that's pretty telling as well. But anyway, all right. So there's that. Take of for what it's worth. Let's just try to, to make some headway here in chapter 16 with David's anointing. I want us to, deal especially remember this is where uh, the, the sons of, of, of Jesse come by. and Samuel says, rejects each one of them. Uh, and then finally finds David, and that's the one God has chosen. And then we, uh, and, and of course, Samuel was having a hard time understanding why all these great strapping young men are being rejected. And uh, God says down here in uh Let's just read verses 6 and 7. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointing is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Now this this is a great passage that, that we want to just stop and think about for a while. Um, you uh, the There's some things you want to think about when, when dealing with this uh, text. First of all, it doesn't mean that outward actions mean nothing as long as the heart or confession is okay. In other words, you can't just read that and, and, and of course, ignore the rest of the Bible, but read this and say, well, the uh, only thing God cares about is what's in our heart. It doesn't matter. What's going on in the bodies? You see, that that would be a verse that the Gnostics would use, right? It's, this has a lot to do with what we're seeing in First Corinthians six, and we will get into it even today in chapter seven. No, it's it don't. In other words, it's not a truth that you you can run wild with. It, it's a truth, but there's more to be said about it. If God does care about our outward man. And that's the whole point that we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 6. But, he's saying that, uh, we gotta be careful here, because God sees the heart, and while all these brothers might be good men, he had prepared David, he had a heart after God, and that's the man that God wanted to be the king. And so, it's not just, because that was the same mistake that made with Saul. Saul was head and shoulders above everybody. Outwardly, he looked apart, but it, there was a problem. Man couldn't see the heart. God couldn't see the heart. And so um, the whole point of him being king instead of Saul is because David had a godly heart, and so would be a better king than Saul, right? <clears throat> Some actually take these verses to mean that we need not to worry over someone's heart, but only watch what we see them doing outwardly. So you see, they're, they're, they're just focusing on one aspect of all this, um, God is not saying that that we are not, to because I, I look on the heart, it doesn't mean that God doesn't look on the outward appearance. And so, some people misread this by by saying, well, if God only looks on the heart and not the outward, then it's okay for us to not worry about the heart and only the outward man. You see, you can run them up. That's why I sent you that video this morning. If you didn't get a chance to watch it. Um, but it's it's a parody of fundamentalism. Again, what I was raised in, called Therology, and in this particular video, it was all about how you wore your hair was whether you were right with God or not, right? And it's a classic example. It's, a, it's an overstatement, but I believe you, I've been in that enough to know that there's an element of it that's very true. If you looked outwardly right, according to their standards, you were a good Christian, and if you didn't, you were bad. And and so, if, again, if you get a chance to, to watch that, if you want just a good laugh, that's really what it is. Um, but it illustrates the, the problem here, making this mistake, uh, going by outward looks and performance with no regard to the heart. Now, again, we want to have a balance. As we've talked about with raising the children, we we Are not just concerned that your children conform outwardly. We want them to have an inward change. We want want their actions to be from the heart. We deal with the gospel, with their heart, right? So we are very concerned about our that we live properly. But God looks on the heart. God love fulfills the, the law. If I'm not, if my outward man doesn't reflect. My inward man, it's hypocrisy. It's legalism, right? So, both of these things must be kept in mind. There is, in this exhortation, uh, to emphasize the heart condition, not just the outward appearance. And so it shouldn't um, be used as an excuse to only work on the outward. Right? God is not telling us that I'll worry about the heart, you worry about the outward man. That, that's legalism. But, you know, we don't want to go there. Um, Luke sixteen fifteen and he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Again, it doesn't mean that everything that we esteem is detestable to God, but in this sense, when we are only concerned with the outward man and we don't worry about our hearts, then that becomes detestable to God. So God is exposing our proneness and, and we understand, right, because I can't see your heart, but I can see the way you live. And, and the same with me, right? So the problem, if, if we're not careful, is that we uh, only are concerned ourselves with uh, the way we act outwardly, and yet, in the New Testament, we read, by your fruits, you shall know them, right? Um, so... The balance here is to realize that if you live a life of sin, for instance, then it exposes your heart. So, yes, God alone sees the heart, but there is a point where we can make a pretty good judgment on someone's heart by the way they're living. Now, again, the danger with that is to fall into judgmentalism and assume that I can know your heart by everything you say or do, you know. And that becomes a real problem. We've got to be very careful there. But clearly, the church, when there's open sin, certain sins, right? We have to uh, exercise church discipline. So it's okay for us to judge people outwardly, and it's, that's usually done when we get when we talk to them and they start to open up to us, and we begin to say, you know what? There's a heart problem. So all that to just say that we have to be very careful here but we don't want to go all one way or the other. There is a sense in which we can't judge the heart. That must be left to God. But another sense in which when we do things contrary to our profession, we force others who can only see our actions to assume that there's something wrong with our heart, and that's perfectly acceptable, even though that's, it's, it, there's, it's a, it, there can be dangers even with that as well. So without going further into that, we should be able to see that a balance is needed so we don't become judges of other people's hearts by seeing our duty to watch every little thing that somebody is doing and we are the one, we set up ourselves in a sense as God and I can determine who you are just by what you say or do and all this kind of stuff. But patterns of activity cannot be ignored either, right? So both of those things. Um. so in this sense there are times when men only can judge by outward appearance, God is saying sometimes that's just how it is but we must keep in mind that motivations are very important your heart's important and the fruit that, that heart produces is important All right. secondly it isn't saying that God opposes good appearances as if he doesn't uh you know, he's Ugliness or repulsiveness is better, uh, for God's work, that the outward man means nothing, uh, that only thing that matters is the heart. God isn't saying that the outward man isn't important at all. Um, you know, so, but we have to be able to look at things as God. If, so we, we're, our problem is that we look at somebody and we see someone who, for instance, is beautiful, and, you know, it's the old tendency of treating somebody differently because of the way they look or something about them, perhaps the money they've got. And we are ruled by the outward man. And is not saying that God opposes those things as if they're bad in some way. God is a God of beauty. I think had Adam and Eve not fallen, everybody would be, uh, every person born at that from that point on, would be beautiful and perfect in every way, right? There would be no sin in the world. But, of course, as sin has brought ugliness and defects into the world, and they just get worse and worse. And that's the way life is. But We've got to be careful of realizing that what's important and what is not. I think it's interesting. David is later said to be a good-looking boy, so God is rejecting Saul or Eliab because they were good-looking. You know, it wasn't that. David's two sons, two of David's sons, Absalom and Adonijah, both tried to overthrow the throne, both were killed, both were evil men, both were said to be good looking men, right? It's interesting. Of course, Absalom had long hair, uh, was very vain because of that. Uh, it's, so it's interesting that, you know, beauty has its drawbacks. Beauty. Beauty can be a temptation. Nothing wrong with beauty, right? I'm not saying that at all, but sometimes, sometimes it's a blessing, perhaps, that you weren't born with Hollywood with good looks. Right? Not just women, but men too. So, uh, it's not all good. In other words, God put us and made us look like we do, he gave us the gifts we have. and instead of wishing we had something else, if you've got a heart that loves the Lord and you're serving the Lord, he will make it all worthwhile. We don't the outward man does not matter. So, more to the point here, David's brothers were grown and strong and outwardly appeared more suitable leaders, that much like Saul, but David had a heart that would depend on the Lord, and he therefore would be a better leader. It doesn't mean that those his brothers couldn't have been good. Beings, but God had prepared David to be the kind of man that Israel needed. Right? He prepared his heart, and so in that sense, outward attributes were neither here nor there. Uh, thirdly, we must see the application not just in choosing our leaders and friends, basically for outward things. Uh, in other words, we we, if we have to be careful that. Our friends, our, our leaders, we don't just look at the glitz, the outward man, but we, we try to, as God enables us to be able to see really what's going on in their hearts, what their motivations are. Maybe a better way to look at it with the political sense, the character. See, remember when, uh, Clinton had his little issue with Monica Lewinsky? And look, what, what did we hear from the Democrats all of a sudden. Uh, character doesn't matter. You know, it's what he, the kind of job he does as a president. Well, you can't really, you can't divide those two things, and it's true no matter who it is. Character matters, and uh, so we, we, I think that's an application there, and but even more so. And what we haven't said so far, but we want to make sure we emphasize is that this is also a call for us to examine our heart. There's a warning as we look to others, but we don't want to be gullible, but there's another sense in which we need to say, okay, look, I need to make sure that my heart is right, that I'm not being a hypocrite, that I do things for the right reasons, because uh, God looks on the heart. And the easiest thing that we can do as human beings, right, is to put on a front And one thing this verse is telling us is that, well, yes, man can only see what you're doing. But God knows why you're doing that. And that matters. Who sees you aren't your judge. Oh, they might control your job. They might control some outward activity in your life. But at the end of the day, only the one who sees your heart is your judge. So it is a call for us to examine our hearts, right? So it's just a great verse. Um lastly, there is something also here about how the Lord can and sometimes does save us from our self appointed leaders or saviors. Uh Israel had looked for a king for non for not reasons that are not good, but it's okay, God has the good king waving in the wings and so it's just a reminder that God sometimes saves us from ourselves when we do uh, sometimes get it wrong, right? Well, okay, I, I wasn't going to get um, too far and all that. I, 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 thought, I thought I'd get done, but you know, I dream, on guess. But I'm—we'll we'll kind of use the rest of this for an introduction next week. or going, any questions from that part? I mean, I think that's pretty self-explanatory and shouldn't be too controversial. But you know, maybe there's something there that i to talk about Yes, bro. Alright, well let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for, uh, just the opportunity to get together and fellowship with the saints and to open up your word. Pray Lord for, is, that you would teach us from it, help us to understand and, and what's, why these things are here and what we are to learn from them that we might, uh, be better servants and to grow in our faith, and our understanding and be able to understand the word of God better as we start to put all these things together. We pray that you would uh, just bless our time this day, Lord, that it might be a profitable time. In Jesus' name, amen.